Greetings and welcome to Christendom College. My name is Adam Wilson and I serve as the Principal's Production Manager here at Christendom. We're so happy to have all of you here with us today, especially those of you who may be new to the college. We welcome in a special way all of our Principal's patrons, members of our Principal's Society, our President's Council members and other benefactors. Together through Principal's, we're sharing the truths of wisdom and knowledge that students receive here at Christendom College with the wider world. It's my pleasure to welcome today Dr. Kurt Potterack, a professor of music here at Christendom College. Dr. Potterack has a bachelor's degree in music education from Aquinas College and a master's and a doctorate in music composition from Michigan State University. He was a protege of Monsignor Richard Schuler and Father, Ro Father Robert Scaris in the study of sacred music. For 10 years, he edited the quarterly journal Sacred Music which is the longest-running music publication in the U.S. He was also the chief editor of the first edition of the Adoramus Hymnal. He has taught Gregorian chant at the Catholic University of America and at Christendom College, where he is currently the director of the college's liturgical music program. Thank you, and please enjoy today's live lecture. Thank you, Adam. Uh, I am here to answer the question, what is sacred music? Is sacred music just music with religious lyrics? Is it music that pleases people and in some way moves them toward God? Is it totally subjective? Is it totally objective? To answer these questions, I should start with the fact that the church has official magisterial teachings on sacred music that have been repeated by popes stretching from Pope Pius X up through Pope Francis. This teaching was solemnly stated at the Second Vatican Council in Chapter 6 of the Liturgy Constitution. Uh, sad to say, not only do many people know nothing about this, even worse, many practitioners of liturgical music on the parish level act as if these teachings don't exist. Why is this? Before we try to answer this question, we need to know exactly what sacred music is according to the Church's official teachings. In a document issued by Rome shortly after Vatican II, a definition of sacred music is given, quote, by sacred music is understood that which being created for the celebration of divine worship is endowed with holiness and goodness of form. Now this short sentence has a footnote which refers to another document issued by Pope St. Pius X in 1903, which had as its subject sacred music it too posited these two qualities, holiness and goodness of form, as necessary qualities of sacred music. Years ago, after reading these words, I thought that they sounded nice but didn't really understand them. What do they mean? Let us do a deep dive into what is meant by these two terms, holiness and goodness of form. First, holiness. God is the source of all holiness because God alone is holy, as sacred scripture says. However, however, people and things that draw close to God can have a share in his holiness and be called holy. This is a Catholic principle. An obvious example would be a saint. After all, the word saint is etymologically related to the Latin word sanctus, which means holy. Another example would be holy water. It is water that is blessed and thus set aside for religious use within a church. Thus, it is taken out of the realm of common use and now used for the things of God. In fact, if someone were to say, 
drink holy water to quench his thirst or wash her hair, not out of ignorance, but deliberately with full knowledge, this could be considered as more than inappropriate, weird, or just dumb. One might even call it a minor sacrilege, a profanation. Liturgical music program. Thank you, and please enjoy today's live lecture. Thank you, Adam. Uh, I am here to answer the question, what is sacred music? Is sacred music just music with religious lyrics? Is it music that pleases people and in some way moves them toward God? Is it totally subjective? Is it totally objective? To answer these questions, I should start with the fact that the church has official magisterial teachings on sacred music that have been repeated by popes stretching from Pope Pius X up through Pope Francis. This teaching was solemnly stated at the Second Vatican Council in Chapter 6 of the Liturgy Constitution. Uh, sad to say, not only do many people know nothing about this, even worse, many practitioners of liturgical music on the parish level act as if these teachings don't exist. Why is this? Before we try to answer this question, we need to know exactly what sacred music is according to the Church's official teachings. In a document issued by Rome shortly after Vatican II, a definition of sacred music is given, quote, by sacred music is understood that which being created for the celebration of divine worship is endowed with holiness and goodness of form. Now this short sentence has a footnote which refers to another document issued by Pope St. Pius X in 1903, which had as its subject sacred music. It too posited these two qualities, holiness and goodness of form, as necessary qualities of sacred music. Years ago, after reading these words, I thought that they sounded nice but didn't really understand them. However, let us say that a priest celebrates Mass wearing his chasuble, as he should. The chasuble is, of course, the sacred vestment which a priest wears when celebrating Mass. Also, let us assume that he must participate in a charity softball tournament after Mass. Instead of changing, he decides to go to the softball field in his chasuble. He goes to bat wearing it. He gets a hit. He runs the bases in it. And finally, he slides into home plate wearing it. I'm sure that at this point, people in the audience are shouting, Stop! Stop! This is outrageous. Of course it is. It is also a profanation of a sacred object. But let us reverse the situation. Let us say that the priest participates in the charity softball tournament before Mass. So after the ball game, he comes to the church wearing his softball uniform, complete with cap and spike shoes. And instead of changing, he celebrates Mass this way. Now this would be a profanation as well, a profanation of the church in this case, because he took something meant for common use, the softball uniform, and brought it into a sacred setting. This is obvious to most people, but how does this apply to sacred music? It applies in this simple way. The church teaches that the music itself, not just the text, but the music must in some way signify as sacred, that which is set aside for sacred use. The music must have the quality of holiness. Now how can music which consists of notes and rhythms be sacred, one may ask. I will set aside any arguments having to do with something intrinsic to the music, its dynamic properties, that makes it more suitable to function as sacred music. 
It is not that I think no such arguments can be made. In fact, I think it is very possible. It is just that I wish to continue by making a linkage to the basic definitional understanding of the holy as that which has been set aside for the things of God. What music has been set aside for sacred use in the Roman Rite? In fact, the Vatican document which I quoted earlier states that this would include, quote, Gregorian chant, sacred polyphony in its various forms, both ancient and modern, sacred music for the organ and other approved instruments, and sacred hymnody, end of quote. This is music that has been hallowed by tradition. I love that phrase. Music hallowed, made holy, through continuous and constant specialized use in the liturgy through, throughout the church for centuries. It is the long-term cultural consensus of this continual use in church that makes such music holy. It is set aside for the things of God. The fact that there now exist such things as folk masses, rock masses, mariachi masses, polka masses, etc., no more makes those sorts of music sacred than the fact that a priest wears his softball uniform during mass making makes that sartorial choice sacred. The fact is that the overall long-term cultural consensus of the West has not shifted to understanding folk music, rock, mariachi, polka music as holy. These musics are firmly entrenched as secular, not sacred. And incidentally, secular does not mean evil. Uh, it just means of the world, the saculum. All that has happened in these cases is that these musics of the world, which have been maybe appropriate in their own realm, have been brought into the church in recent decades, thus reducing the sense of the sacred within the church. But why is the temptation to desacralization greater with music, seemingly, than with other things such as vestments? Personally, I think that it is because of all the arts, music is the one that gives the most immediate pleasure. It touches deeply into the non-rational part of our soul and can easily become a comfort item which people want to carry everywhere with them, kind of like a little child with a teddy bear. Music, especially in the modern world, has become the comfort item for adults, one could argue. Everywhere you see people with earbuds, headphones, listening to their favorite music. For decades there have been car radios, cassette and CD players, 8-track players for those of you old enough to remember, and most places of business play some sort of music in the background. Modern technology has made this indulgence very economically feasible. However, problems with inappropriate music in church have been with us for a while. Pope Pius X voiced his concerns at the turn of the 20th century because of a spate of popular operatic arias and theatrical music being used as the basis for some church music. The fathers of the Council of Trent expressed similar concerns in the 16th century. The nature of music, which I alluded to earlier, is such that it tempts people into asking the question, do I like it? Does it give me pleasure? When the more apt question in church should be, is it redolent of the sacred? Is it appropriate for Mass? Now, let us approach the necessity of a holy liturgical music from one final angle. The Church also teaches that sacred music is the highest of all the sacred arts because it is a necessary or integral part of the solemn liturgy. Again, what exactly does that mean? As Pope Pius XII explained, quote, while architecture, painting, and sculpture prepare a worthy setting for the sacred ceremonies. Sacred music 
has an important place in the actual performance of the sacred ceremonies and rites themselves, end quote. You see what this means? Sacred music is integrated into the actual liturgical action, at least it is supposed to be. Singing is supposed to be integrated into the liturgical ritual itself and on a regular basis. As the general instruction of the Roman Missal says, quote, although it is not always necessary, for example, in weekday masses, to sing all of the texts that are themselves meant to be sung, every care should be taken that singing by the ministers, that's the priests, the deacons, and the people is not absent in celebrations that occur on Sundays and on holy days of obligation, end of quote. But how many of us encounter in a parish setting on a Sunday a good old-fashioned Misa cantata, a sung ritual, whether in English or Latin, in which basically everything is sung? Or, at best, do we encounter a situation most Sundays in which music is treated like an atmospheric, to brighten an otherwise spoken low mass? A few choir pieces here, an organ piece there. In other words, music is treated somewhat like sacred architecture, a setting, an atmosphere, an environment, in which the basically spoken ritual unfolds, the music being treated as neither necessary nor an integrated part of the liturgy. How we got to this situation is a topic for another day. Suffice it to say that in a true solemn liturgy in which everything is sung by priest, congregation, and choir, we have an even greater reason for why the music itself must have the quality of holiness. The music is intimately wed to the ritual action. If there is still any confusion about what I am saying, let me offer this final example. Imagine a solemn high mass celebrated in a hotel ballroom. Now, this is not the ideal setting. It's far from it. It's not a worthy setting, but it might be necessary because it is part of a conference and there is no nearby church. However, let us now imagine a solemn high mass celebrated in a beautiful cathedral or basilica, but with the sacred music replaced by the piped-in tinkly muzak that is normally heard in hotels. This latter situation is far worse than the former, both according to the church's teaching and common sense. The reason is that sacred music is supposed to be an integrated part of the liturgical ritual, and therefore being a part of the ritual itself, um, it is itself actual liturgy, and thus on a higher planing than, plane than the other sacred arts, which as important as they are, merely provide a worthy setting for the sacred liturgy. Now, as an aside, sometimes people will raise the question of the use of popular musical styles outside of the Mass for purposes of, say, evangelization. So I should say a few words about this. I will probably take some flack for this, and I do want to stress that this is my opinion although I believe a carefully reasoned one, so here goes. First, it is true that this is a different subject and that the church's legislation has largely to do with music uh, at the liturgy and within a church building. Nonetheless, in my opinion, the same basic principles would apply, even if perhaps less strictly. Let us say that I have concerns in this area. So-called contemporary Christian music certainly has an audience and evidently appeals to many people. Still, one must ask the question, what exactly is the nature of the appeal? Music, though not strictly speaking a language, nonetheless is a kind of symbol system, which, among other things, can convey ideas and attitudes. When you try to promote a Christian message using music from an aggressively secular culture, this can create what psychologists call cognitive dissonance, regardless of what the lyrics say. 
I remember an atheist professor that I had in graduate school who nonetheless praised the Catholic Church for having had a wise sense of culture, at least historically. He had no use for so-called evangelical Christians. I remember him once saying, in effect, Christian rock? Christian pop? What's next? Christian belly dancing? Christian weight loss? The notion that you can appropriate something whole and entire by just changing some words and affixing a label, he felt, was not, was, was not only a naive view of how culture works, but also contrary to the way the earliest Christians operated. And anyone knowledgeable about patristics can vouch for that. Now, I know someone object, uh, would object saying, but Christian rock brought me to the faith or it helps me to pray. My response would be first, good, that's wonderful, sincerely. Although secondly, I would point out that God works in all sorts of situations, including less than ideal ones. God writes straight with crooked lines, as they say, but that doesn't mean we should be promoting crooked lines. This is analogous to a man brought to the faith upon seeing an extremely attractive young woman reading the Bible. I'm sure that this has happened before. At a certain point, however, this man must accept the actual gospel message, which is repent and believe, take up your cross and follow Christ, not thou shalt always have pretty girls about thee. That is not the gospel message. What it is, is a relationship of juxtaposition in which two objects that aren't really related are put together and one of them, a very desirable object, attracts attention and sheds a favorable light on the other object. It's an old advertising technique known as transference. It can work, but it is ultimately a very shallow and superficial technique. It is perhaps like the biblical parable of the sower who sows on rocky ground. It is definitely not the stuff of which profound cultures are made. So be careful and remember that rock, pop, and rap are not the only types of music in the modern world. What they are, are a part of a very powerful contemporary secular culture. Ideally, the music which conveys the Christian faith inside or even outside of a church should be appropriate to the subject matter, or at least neutral in its associations. That is my view of the matter. Now, moving on, let us tackle the second quality in the church's definition of sacred music which is usually translated as goodness of form. This is a phrase that is a little odd to us, so let us spend some time on it. The phrase reflects a very medieval view of the beautiful, which is much more objective than subjective. Most of us have heard the phrase, beauty is in the eye of the beholder, a phrase that apparently was first used in an 1878 novel. Although he never used the phrase, the 18th century philosopher Immanuel Kant seems to have established the conditions for it. His so-called Copernican revolution in philosophy, philosophy, whereby reality is constructed out of our subjective responses to it, certainly set the stage for this. And because of this philosophical term, many of us tend to be to some degree unreflective subjectivists when it comes to art. I can't tell you how many times I've heard the phrase, I don't know anything about music, but I know what I like. In other words, it's my subjective taste that matters. To the medieval mind, at least the educated medieval mind, the beautiful was much more objective. It involved the harmony of individual parts put together into a coherent whole through which shone the beauty of the things so connected. These are the three things um, that, that are necessary, according to Thomas Aquinas. He called them proportion, the harmony of the individual parts, integrity, the coherent whole, and brightness, the shining forth of those relations. As to the last term, um, the, the, you could substitute the word splendor 
And indeed, Thomas Aquinas' teacher, Albertus Magnus, called beauty the splendor forme, the splendor of form. Now, proportion and integrity or wholeness can be found in mathematical relations. And this can be a kind of beauty, but it is abstract. The beauty of art involves a shining forth, or in the case of music, a sounding forth of these harmonious relations. And this gives a concrete sweetness to these formal structures. In the medieval university, the so-called quadrivium consisted of arithmetic, geometry, music, and astronomy. To moderns, this may seem like a strange combination. What is music doing with math and science? But to medievals, it made perfect sense. Arithmetic and geometry were abstract disciplines dealing with number relations. Music made present in an unseen yet audible way those number relations which were then to be found between the concrete and very visible planets in the discipline of astronomy. So music was the hinge that connected the totally abstract numerical order to the totally concrete numerical order. Let us return specifically to the phrase goodness of form as one of the qualities which sacred music must possess. What does it mean? Its meaning is not self-evident to most people, so let us take some time to unpack cognitiveness. But in pana gratia, que tu crea. Wish uh, that you're having that bad experience. Um, maybe you can find a parish where um, the, the, they sing more. Um, okay, so it looks like we're out of time. Uh, so thank you all of, uh, for listening. Uh, I hope I've been able to inform you some, and uh, uh, you can contact me at the college anytime if you have any further questions via email. So this is uh, Dr. Kirk Poderak signing off. God bless.